0: If you would stand in reverence to the reading of God's perfect word, I'm going to read verse 7 of chapter 16, and then we'll look at this chapter together. Hear the word of Christ today. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on height or stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on outward appearance. But the Lord looks on the heart. Oh God, thank you for that truth and that reality. Because as much as we try to outwardly impress you, God, we can't and we know we can't. We feel, we feel our weakness and frailty in trying to impress you outwardly. You are not impressed. You are the creator of the world. You've created all things. You control all things. You hold all things into your hands. You are beautiful and you are glorious. All truth, all reality is wrapped up in who you are. We cannot impress you. And we don't have to. Because you look on the heart. And in the gospel, you've given us the heart of Jesus. Oh, would we trust him today. He impresses you for us. It's in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Please, please help. I was met at the door by an older lady, probably in her 70s. I had tears running down her face, and she was. In a panic and the most desperate, desperate person that I've ever seen or have seen since. She was scared to death. Her husband had collapsed and was not breathing. And some of you know this about me. There was about an 11th month, 11 month period of my life where I went to paramedic school and was an EMT. And uh, I was on a call in my hometown so, a family that I didn't even... You grow up in Lewisburg, you know everybody, and everybody knows you. I had no clue who these people were. My partner and I, we walked into a room, and he checked the vitals, and it was obvious that the man was dead. And I don't remember why, but we had to keep doing CPR. And we rushed the man to the ambulance... And I remember vividly that night through my hometown, all of the familiar sights outside of the ambulance, out of the back of the ambulance as I sort of meaninglessly did CPR in the back of an ambulance. I remember vividly the the cramps in my hand as I squeezed the bag over and over and over again. I remember the exhaustion from doing chest compressions over and over and over again. And and I remember the the horror of what was pronounced when we went into the ER. What we already knew was a reality that that this man was dead. And the last 15 minutes of what I was doing was really meaningless because he had died. And I remember his wife hearing the news and crying. I, I remember the, the, the desperation in her voice, and her eyes, and, and just the scene was there. And that was my last call as an EMT. I, I was like, I can't do this anymore. God actually used that night to call me into the ministry. Because I, I remember feeling so helpless in the face of death. I remember thinking, there's nothing I can do. Nothing. This is hopeless and this is helpless in these moments. And this is exactly the gut-riching pain that is described of Samuel in verse 1. Samuel is the prophet, priest of God, who throughout the whole book has been trying to make this kingdom with Saul work. He has pronounced Saul king on behalf of God because that's the king the people wanted. Remember, the people wanted a king like the nations. They wanted a king who would fight their battles. They didn't like the fact that God was their king. You can't see God. He's in this box, in this tent. we, We want a King who will ride in a chariot out in front of us as we go to battle and we can champion him and he can have trophies and and we want that kind of king. We want to be able to brag about our king, our hero. And so they picked Saul because he's he's tall. He looks good. He looks the part. Cover the magazines, front page of the newspaper. Yes, he will make a great trophy king for us that's who we want and and God gives them such a king in Saul and chapter after chapter we see it just ain't gonna work that's not God's chosen king Saul is not the kind of king God wants for you and the people of Israel keep trying to make it work and Samuel in between God and the people he's tried to make it work He's pronounced judgment. He's called Saul to repentance. He's called the people to repentance. And it's not going to work. And in some sense, he has been doing CPR on a dead kingdom. Because it's not the kingdom that God would have for his people. Notice verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul? From the last chapter where the kingdom was ripped away from Saul. Agag. This Amalekite king is hacked to pieces in front of the people of God to displace all sin. And the kingdom is taken away from him. And Samuel goes off into uh, depression. He's been weeping over everything that's happened. Can you imagine Samuel grieving over all of this? This is not, this is not what I expected when I went to seminary. This is not what I expected when I thought I was called into the ministry. Samuel, thinking, I'm a prophet of God to stand before the people of God to point to the kingdom of God, and it's all in devastation. And he's weeping, and he's depressed. The grief here is described as if someone has died. And notice it is over Saul. Imagine the nights where Samuel is, come on, Saul, let's make it work. Quit being an idiot. Quit being a moron. Quit acting the way that you are. Calling him to repentance. Calling the people to repentance. And it hasn't worked. And God says, okay, let's stop the grief. I reject it, Saul. Let's move on, Samuel. Samuel. Because I rejected him from being king over Israel. This is my will. This is what I've done. And he tells him to fill your horn with oil. Now remember this instrument of anointing that the prophets filled with oil. It was probably an ox horn. And it symbolized strength and power. You're to think about an ox goring its enemies to death. An ox goring a tiger, a lion, a coyote to death. And it was used in battle. It was used as an instrument to play in battle. And it was used to anoint God's kings to say, this is my king and he will gore my enemies to death. This is the king that I want. And he says, I want you to get that horn and notice and go fill it with oil. And I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Now at this point we're thinking, okay, who in the world is that? Samuel's having to stalk him on Facebook to figure out who is this Jesse of Bethlehemite. But we know biblical history, this is where God's king would come from. The line of Jesse, a Bethlehemite, Bethlehem, the place of bread, the place by which God will provide for his people, which is what he literally says here, for I've provided myself a king among his sons. And the word for provide here is also the word I I have seen. I've seen among Jesse's boys my king. And I've provided among Jesse's boys a king for myself. So Samuel, stop grieving because the story marches on. Stop grieving. And some of you are here today and you are grieving the loss of a kingdom. You have felt that pain where, where you woke up after the funeral. Days of preparing for that moment. And you've woken up in your bed all alone. And you've grieved And you've said, I don't, is this a dream? Because if it's not a dream, I don't want to go on. And some of you here today are grieving the betrayal of a friend, a boss at work who's done you wrong, a friend who stabbed you in the back, a spouse who said, I don't want to be here anymore. And you're dealing with that grief in these moments. And you're saying, I don't know if I want life to go on without this person and and some of you this morning you're thinking about your life you're thinking about decisions that you've made you're you're thinking about where you are what you're going to get up tomorrow morning and do and you're thinking that's not what I want I didn't want this I, I didn't want this for my life this is not the direction I would have chosen and every day you get up and there's that tinge of grief in your gut And what God says to you today is the same thing that he says to Samuel. I have provided for myself a king. I've provided something better for you in a king. I've provided the word I have seen a king. And there's good news for you in your grief today. As you grieve the loss of kings and kingdoms in your life, sin on your part, sin on the part of others, living in a world cursed with death, grieving those things, you can stand and say, God has provided a king who has died for my sins. His name is Jesus. That's my hope. That my sins are forgiven. Whatever else I'm grieving over, Jesus has died for my sins. God has seen Jesus hanging on a cross in my place. God has provided for me a king who is back from the dead, a former corpse who is at his right hand, ruling and reigning. God has provided for himself a king in your place. Whatever you're grieving over today, it's real. It's hurtful. It's painful. You can say Jesus is at the right hand of God. God has seen him raised from the dead. And if you believe in Jesus today, if you believe that God has provided for himself a king, guess what? He sees you differently. He sees you differently as you grieve. He sees you as a son covered in the righteousness of Christ as we've just sung. Forgiven of sin. He sees you as an heir to the kingdom with all rights and all power and all authority that Jesus himself has. He has provided for himself a king for you. That's what he tells Samuel here. And Samuel says, how can I go if Saul hears that he will kill me? Now, notice how Saul's disposition has changed in the book. He is very passive when he first becomes king. People are insulting him. How can this farm boy be king? And he just sort of marches on and he ignores them. And then when, when war breaks out, Saul is wanting to have a worship service. He's back in, in his own hometown doing nothing. He's very passive. But as we've seen in the last few chapters, he's ready to kill his son Jonathan. Jonathan. And now, Samuel, his friend, his buddy, the prophet, says, he'll kill me if I go look for another king. That's how deranged Saul has become over his kingdom. And so God says, take a heifer and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice. And I will show you what to do. And you shall anoint for me, him whom I declare. Now, this would have been uh, this would have been common for Samuel to show up in a region and offer sacrifice. There would have been sin in these regions, and and, and the people uh, may even be thinking here: How have we sinned? The prophet, the priest shows up with a cow. That means someone in our region has sinned. And notice verse four. Samuel did what the Lord commanded, and he came to Bethlehem. And the elders of the city met him. Notice what they're doing, trembling. Samuel's coming to town. Oh, Samuel. Throughout the last few chapters, all Samuel and Saul have represented is death and chaos and judgment. On Samuel's sword is still the blood of Agag that he chopped to pieces in front of the people of God. The prophets coming to town... What have we done? Who here has sinned? He's bringing a cow. Okay, there's going to be a sacrifice for sin. We need to know who has sinned. And they meet him at the gate and they say, Do you come peacefully? And he said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves, get ready for worship. There was a cleansing that they had to go through before they would approach worship. In the presence of God. And he says, Come with me to sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and he invited them to the sacrifice. And notice, and when they came, he looked at Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. So Samuel shows up, We're gonna have a sacrifice, a worship service, make sure Jesse's family comes. And he's thinking, Which one of these boys is gonna be king? And the oldest walks in. And in his mind he goes, that's him. Look how tall he is. Look how strong he is. Look at all the women. They're looking at him. They're gawking at him. He is the guy. He is the one that the Lord has chosen. The spirit, he says, must be before him. But notice the Lord said, do not look at his appearance. On his height or stature because I rejected him. He says, stop it, Samuel. You just made this mistake. Israel just made the same mistake that you're making. You're caught up in the way that he looks. You're caught up in outward appearance. I rejected him just like I rejected Saul. God is saying to Samuel, I've seen Eliab. I created him. I know how good he looks. I know how tall he is. But he's not king. Four. Four. The Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Now, remember, as we talked about in verse 1, the word provide also means see. And so, what God is saying here is the Lord provides not as man provides. Man looks on outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Man provides according to outward appearance, but the Lord provides looking on the heart. And what he's, what he's pointing to here is not that there is something bad inside Eliab, but what he is saying here is he's not the one I chose. I, according to my heart and my desire, I'm not choosing Eliab. He's the oldest, he looks the good, uh, he, he's strongest, but he's not the one I've chosen. Men choose according to what they see, but I choose differently. I choose according to my own desires, is what God is saying. So he's talking not about what is inside man, but how he does things. And, and the point here is God's choice isn't always our choice. Because we look at the world and we say, surely the Lord's anointed is on this person. Surely the Lord's anointed is on this way of doing things. And the reality is, God would not always choose an Instagram-worthy way of doing things. God sees, looks upon, and chooses to use the senior adult lady who's on a fixed income, who still gives 10% of her money for the sake of the gospel. That nobody knows about. God chooses to do so much more there than what we might post or retweet. God does not choose a Christianity that's cool, that's hip, that's appealing. How can we appeal to others? You can't make the gospel appealing. You're a sin- sinner, you have to trust in a crucified king, that's not appealing. But God chooses to see the college student willing to be outcasted at the frat house for the sake of the gospel. That's not the way we would do things, but that's the way God does things. God does things differently than the way that we would do things. God doesn't choose to use the hashtag blessed Sunday only attending Christianity. He chooses to use a Christianity that you don't see Monday through Saturday. The nurse here this morning who decided to work extra shifts because she works with a single mom who is an unbeliever and needs the gospel and needs to be home with her kids. And so she worked extra hours this week so she would not just know Jesus but get to be with her kids this week. Those are the things God uses that we don't see. That's how God moves in the world. God rejects a version of Christianity that thinks we can only be successful if we have the power, if we have the majority, if we are winning. That's what we think. How are we going to win the world for Christ? Let's have the numbers. Let's have the power. Let's have the influence. But God chooses to use the granny who's dying of cancer, clinging to the gospel, Telling everyone who walks in the hospice room about Jesus. Weak, frail, cancer-riddled body. Nothing to offer but the gospel. Doesn't look like strength. But that's what God provides for us. That's how God uses. Notice the text continues. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. Okay, the oldest didn't work. Next in line. Get up here. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen him. Then Jesse made Shema pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. It's getting weird. Strange. Call us out to this worship service. You're going to pick one of my boys. and Well, the three best have already passed before you. Now we're down to Jonah. That's my fourth son. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. And then Samuel said to Jesse, are these all, this is all you got? This is all your sons? And he said, there remains yet the youngest. But behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him and we will not sit down until he comes. Oh, you have one more? There's another boy? And, and the boys in the background are going, yeah, but he's with the sheep. You see, sheep herding was for the slaves, for the least of these. And and he's just a little boy. He's out there with the sheep. That's why we didn't invite him. Because surely to goodness, you're not going to pick him. He's a a little boy, and he's with sheep. And, And we know from the Bible that shepherds are cowboys, Cowboys, That you think about what is a shepherd in the Bible, you think about heroes. You think about cowboys. And God tells the story that way because the heroes are not who you would notice. The heroes are the shepherds out in the field. Nobody sees them. They're working third shift. Nobody knows what they're doing. The rugged cowboys. You would never pick him. He's an outlaw. But there remains a youngest keeping the sheep. And he, he says, bring him in. We're not going to do the worship. We're not going to do the sacrifice. We're not even going to eat until he bring, you bring him in. And when they sent and they brought him in, he was ruddy. And he had beautiful eyes and was handsome. Now, the word ruddy to us sounds bad. We say, oh, he was ugly. No, that's not what he's saying. That means he was tanned. It means he looks like he'd been at the beach. Because he'd been out working in the sun. And he comes in, and he's got these beautiful eyes. And he's handsome. This is, he was a baby face. He was beautiful. And and he was young. And he was tanned. And the Lord said, Arise and anoint him, for this is he. And Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. Now, that's significant because the display here is God chooses the least of these. He should have chosen the oldest. Nope. God doesn't always do that. Remember Esau and Jacob? Who did he choose? Jacob. He's got a pattern of not choosing the oldest. The one who deserves the throne, deserves the rights. And he chooses the youngest. He should have chosen Jonathan, Saul's son. That's not who he chooses. He goes to a whole different family. And he chooses the youngest shepherd boy. The youngest, the the weakest at this point. Who is insignificant among his brothers. But notice the difference. The Spirit of the Lord rushes upon him from that day forward. And God is saying, this is the line I will use. And then Samuel rose and went back to Ramah. This is the line I will use. But notice how it comes about. The invisible power of God. The Spirit of God. Here it means breath or wind. Displays who the king is looking upon these eight boys you wouldn't go that's him you wouldn't you know the story and you think you're cool and you think you understand you would say oh I would pick David I know the shepherd boy playing the harp he's the hero I know well you know the story but if you showed up you wouldn't have said yeah him you said he stinks he smells like sheeple wool. I'm not picking him But the Spirit of God makes the kingdom visible right in front of their eyes. Among everybody else they would have chosen. And this is the way the kingdom works. The Spirit makes visible the invisible. The kingdom of Christ in your life becomes visible by the Spirit of God. That's the way the kingdom moves. The power of God makes known to us what we would not know otherwise. You would have never believed in Jesus apart from the Spirit of God. You would not have done it. Some of you think you're cool and you would have become a Christian because you're just smart. No, you wouldn't have. You would have died being a cool, selfish, smart twit who rejected Jesus apart from the Spirit of God. And so stop right now and thank God that he saved you by his Spirit. That he made known to you what you would not know otherwise. What was invisible to you has become visible. That stay-at-home mom friend who said, let's have coffee. And you said, this is weird. This is weird. Why does she want to meet with me? She started talking to you about Jesus. And you believed in a Galilean redneck who had no influence or political sway as your king. And you followed him as Lord. You wouldn't have done that apart from the Spirit of God. You wouldn't have. That moment your grandmother knelt next to your bed and she began to plead with you to admit you're a sinner, confess Jesus is Lord and follow Him, and you said, I want to get in on this Christianity thing, and you believed the gospel in that moment, you would have not done that apart from the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God made visible to you what was invisible, and you trusted in Jesus, and you followed after Jesus. That's the way God moves. You can't do it. You don't have control over it. You see it, and you believe it, and you embrace it, but you would not have done so without the power of God. You have believed in an executed, lost, fake king of the Jews as Lord and Savior, a former corpse who you've never never set your eyes on him. But you believe this is true, and you believe this is your only hope. Why would you do that? Why would you believe this apart from the spirit of the kingdom? And that's what happens in these moments. But notice as we continue, now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. So in that moment, the the, the spirit leaves Saul And moves upon David. But notice what happens. A harmful or evil spirit. And notice it's from the Lord. Begins to torment Saul. And we're going to see this sort of spiral out of control in the next few chapters. Saul is left to himself. To deal with himself. To the point he is judged and cursed. By by a spirit. That will remind him of his self-centeredness. And oppress him in these ways. As we move in these next few chapters. And his servants see it. And they notice a harmful spirit from the Lord is torturing you. You've been cursed by God, Saul. And they say, let our Lord command your servants who are before you to seek a man who is skillful in playing the lyre or harp. And when a harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and it will be well. Saul, you are cursed by God and you are being tormented. What you need is some instrumental harp. And he's a essential oil diffuser in the background. If you're Stu Jackson, that's what you would do. (laughs) Stu likes essential oils, and he will argue. If If you try to make fun of him, he will argue with you. But what you need is some nice, calming music. Slow instrumental. Verse 17, so Saul just said to his servants, it sounds good. Provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. And one of the young men, notice young, you're not supposed to talk. You just do what Saul says. But again, young man answered. Behold, I've seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Now that that doesn't make any sense. Nobody knows who David is. Nobody knows of the little heart boy. Nobody knows. And in the court of Saul, oh yeah, Jesse's boy. He's skillful in playing the harp. But notice this, he's a man of valor. He's a man of war. He's prudent in speech, and he's a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Now, what is the description there? That is a description of a shepherd king who will rule and reign on behalf of God for God's people. He just described God's king. He's a man of war who will fight. He is a man of valor. He is the one God will raise up to to defend his people. He is a leader. When he walks into the room, people notice. And we've just seen a scene that is the opposite of that. But why is that? The Lord is with him. Now, at that point, Saul should have said, whoa, 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 whoa. The Lord is with him. That means he's taking my place. But he doesn't even get it. He doesn't even understand what is going on here. Isn't it ironic that Saul looks upon him, verse 19, and says, Yes, this is the one I want to Bring the harp boy. Saul sent his messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. Now remember what Saul was doing when he was pronounced king. He was chasing his dad's donkeys, and he couldn't even find them. Wasn't even good at that. But David's still with the sheep. Even though he's anointed by God, he's out with the sheep. He has all the credentials that anyone would want as a leader. Go get him. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and skin of wine and a young goat and sent them. Now all of those things were used when Samuel went to the temple to live there. And what's going on with David here is he's going to be adopted into Saul's house. He's going to become a part of the court, a part of the kingdom. And David said to, as entered Saul's service and notice this, Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. So it just gets better and better and better. Oh, he's a great leader. He's a man of valor, and the Lord is with him, and he can play a harp. Okay, give him my weapons. Saul says, I'm going to give him my weapons because I love him so much. He's such a great guy. Not knowing he's handing over his sword and spear to the one who will take his throne. But he comes in peace. He comes in gentleness. And he says, I have found favor with him in my sight, the shepherd boy. Verse 23. And whenever a harmful spirit was upon him from God, David took the lyre and he played it with his hand. And so Saul was refreshed and was well and the harmful spirit departed. And what we see here is David... Anointed by the Spirit of God is asserting dominance over Saul's kingdom with a harp. With a harp. He's just playing the harp. And what is he displaying there? The power and authority of God. The power and authority of God's kingdom. Even to suppress tormenting spirits. David is God's king. The Lord is with him. And throughout the book, we've already seen that Saul is a picture of Israel. When Israel picked Saul as king, they were picking themselves as king. And Saul is God's mirror that he holds up to Israel and says, Look how selfish you are. Look in that mirror. You see your king? He's a reflection of you. And at this point, Israel is cursed with a bad king. They've been tormented with a bad king. Not the king they need. And so what do they need? They need a king who comes in peace. They need a king who ushers in the peace of the kingdom. And here he is, David. David, the instrumentalist. David, the good-looking young boy. He's a great leader, lots of potential. He can fight, he's strong, he's good with a sword. That's That's the one we need, and he's the one who will bring peace to Israel. And at this point, right at this point, we have to stop and we have to realize where Israel is. They're in between two kingdoms. The the kingdom of Saul, which is not the, king the kingdom they need, and now the kingdom of David begins to overlap Saul. And they find themselves in the middle. They find themselves in the middle of two kings, two overlapping kingdoms. Saul sits on the throne, but the kingdom's been ripped away and given to David. And here they are. And what's David going to do, or what's Saul going to do in the next few chapters? He's going to rage. When he figures out who David is, it makes him angry. And he tries to hold on to his kingdom. And it's the same thing we see in the world right now. We live in a world where there are two overlapping kingdoms. Satan has been defeated with a cross and a resurrection. And yet we live in the residue of his kingdom. Sin and death still float about and spiral around us. And we live in the overlapping of two kingdoms because there is a new king whose name is Jesus. Who has died and been raised from the dead and he is seated at the right hand as God's king And he is the one who is ushering in peace. He's the one who's been declared king. But in the overlapping of these two kingdoms, what do we often do? We do the same thing Saul does. We begin to rage. And we want to hold on to this kingdom, Satan, sin, and death. Because we believe this is where it's at. Appearance, what, what it looks like in front of me. There's a kingdom provided for me that will make me happy. And it's a dead kingdom. It's a kingdom that's passing away, but we cling to it. We try so hard to be happy in the here and now. And we rage and we kick and we scream in the same way that we're going to see Saul do. Some of you are here today and you cannot believe when I tell you this this morning, that whatever degree you have, Whatever amount of money that you'll ever make, whatever wife and family that you have in your head that you're gonna have, when I tell you that will not make you ultimately happy, those are good things, but they will not save you. When I say that to you today, you don't believe me. You don't believe me. You think that's what's gonna make you happy. And you're saying, I don't wanna be a millionaire. I just want to pay some more bills. I don't want, I don't want, I don't want it all. I just want something. And if I get that thing in the here and now, I will be happy. And you're clinging to it. And what you're trying to do this morning, you're trying to do CPR on a kingdom that's already died. There is a new kingdom that makes you happy. There is a new king who has come in peace. Peace. And that is the kingdom you are to turn to. You're to take all of those things of this world that are good and that are pleasing, that you can leverage for his kingdom, but they're not to make you happy here and now, ultimately and eternally. It's not. It won't. The good news is all of those things are to point to something greater, which is Jesus who has come in peace. There's a, kingdom who's come, there's a king who's come in peace. Notice David doesn't rush in. If it was me and I'm thinking I have the Spirit of God, the prophet of God came to my farm and he poured that oil on my head and I'm here to sit on that throne in this castle and I'm taking over. What's going to stop him? He he could have cut Saul's head off. But what does he do? He comes in peace. He even serves and blesses Saul. And it's the same thing we see Jesus do with us. As we cling and we fight against Jesus, we say, no, I don't want your authority and your power. What does he do? He comes in peace. If Jesus came into Jerusalem, guns ablazing, we're the first one down. We're gone. It's over for us if he comes in, guns ablazing, But what does he do? He comes in and lays his own life down. He, he walks into the throne room of God and lays his own life down for us so that we can have peace. He, he comes in marching as a lamb led to slaughter. And those sounds that we hear when we think about the story, the crowd raging, Give us Barabbas, crucify him. The, the, the sounds we hear of rage and war as the blood gurgles in his throat as he is suffocated to death on his own blood the sound that you hear as the nails clink through the flesh into the wood and there is a thud the sound you hear as you hear the crowds humiliating him dressing him up in purple king of the Jews he saved others he can't save himself as he comes in peace and lays his own life down as you hear the spit from the mouths of of men created in his image hit him on the face As, as you hear the blood that is pouring from his side as the spear goes in and as you hear the sound from his voice my God my God why have you forsaken me as you hear the sound as you hear the sound of him say it is finished That's to be music to your ears. Because it's the sound of your peace. He has endured the hostility of God for you. So the tormenting spirit of sin and death has no authority. That's a kingdom that's dead. That's a kingdom that's been crucified. And the only question for you today is why are you trying to resuscitate it? Why are you trying to bring it back to life? It's not going to make you happy. Follow the king who comes in peace, who gives peace. Let's pray.